I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Benita Lee. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Coming up, we look at recent studies that warn of greater risk from alcohol consumption. And we talk about alcohol addiction with an expert on the topic from CU Boulder, our own Beth Bennett. Alcohol can affect every neurotransmitter system in your brain. So many other drugs just act at one. Cocaine acts on the dopamine system. Marijuana acts on the endocannabinoid system. But alcohol can act on all kinds of different neurotransmitter systems. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with a welcome return of the award-winning Colorado Cafe Psy. It's happening tonight at Denver's Blake Street Tavern starting at 6.30. How on Earth's Joel Parker has more. Tonight, August 2nd, Denver's Cafe Scientifique will host a presentation by Chandra Rosenthal, who is the director of the Rocky Mountain Office of the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. Her presentation is titled, The Current Challenges of U.S. Land Management, One Step Forward, Two Steps Back. PEER supports current and former public employees who seek a higher standard of environmental ethics and scientific integrity within their agencies. At this cafe, Chandra Rosenthal will be discussing how PEER works to protect the environment, protect lands and our natural resources, their analysis of the livestock grazing program using Bureau of Land Management data. She will also discuss how PEER's work impacts Colorado's natural resources and why this work is critical to keeping our ecosystems healthy, sustainable, and accessible. Everyone is welcome to these Cafe Sci presentations and discussions, which take place at the Blake Street Tavern at 2301 Blake Street in Denver, close to Coors Field. The talk starts at 6.30 tonight and ends around 8 p.m. Come before 6 p.m. to leave yourself time to get something to eat. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. While you might very much enjoy lifting a pint or a glass of wine at tonight's Colorado Cafe Sci. The science news this summer about drinking alcohol has not been very rosy, or perhaps should we say, rosé. A study that came out mid-July from Oxford University warns that even moderate drinking is associated with an increased buildup of iron in the brain, which is a risk factor for brain disorders such as Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's disease. The Oxford study enlisted 20,000 people who self-reported their alcohol consumption and then had an analysis of their brain iron levels. The average age of participants was 55 years old and their average alcohol intake was around 18 units per week. That's about seven and a half cans of beer or six large glasses of wine. That might not sound like much, but it was more than twice as much alcohol as the researchers found to be linked with higher iron levels in the brain's basal ganglia. The basal ganglia handles motor movements, procedural learning, eye movement, cognition, emotion, and more. 
The researchers started to see excess iron accumulation in the basal ganglia when research subjects self-reported as little as four cans of beer a week or three large glasses of wine. The Oxford study simply looked at moderate alcohol consumption. Then there's binge drinking. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism defines binge drinking as a pattern of downing five or more drinks for a man in about two hours, or four or more drinks if you're a woman. As for what's a pattern, the National Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration says it's binge drinking if it happens as little as one time a month. And now a study published yesterday from the University of Texas, San Antonio, warns that binge drinking has been going up in an especially vulnerable group. It's pregnant women who have a double risk. Their personal health is more vulnerable during pregnancy, and so is the health of the developing baby. From 2011 through 2020, binge drinking and heavy drinking were higher among non-pregnant women than pregnant women. But in those 20 years, the average increase in binge and heavy drinking has been significantly greater among pregnant women. This study was just published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Among all the substances that people turn to for a change of mood, it's our legal one, alcohol, that remains the biggest threat to health, especially for people who don't seem to be able to drink in moderation. This leads to the question, why can one person smoke cigarettes for a year, then suddenly quit while another smoker stays addicted for life? Why is it easy for one person to take it or leave it while another person becomes an alcoholic? Researchers from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine published new findings on this topic in mid-July in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. They report that addictive responses to cigarettes and alcohol are more likely among people whose genetics lead to an overexpression of neurons, meaning brain cells, that trigger other cells to send chemical signals throughout the brain. The researchers suggest that for people with this genetic makeup who struggle with addiction, they might benefit from antipsychotics or other mood stabilizer medications. But could it also be that simply understanding the brain and addictions better might give people more room to make the choices that are better for their health? To find out more, up next, Shelley speaks with a local expert on addiction, especially alcohol addiction. She's our own How on Earth volunteer, CU Boulder biology professor and genetics researcher, Beth Bennett. Here's Shelley and Beth. Beth Bennett, this is going to be something of a thought experiment, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you are a biologist and a geneticist, and you've worked in addiction. That's right, and you know, Shelley, Addiction is a really interesting phenomenon. We have the potential to become addicted to anything that's pleasurable. Addiction can also have the body trying to avoid pain. And that would come along secondarily in the addiction process. Let's take something like cocaine, which has an immediate effect on the body. It causes, it's not exactly a release of dopamine, but it interferes with the reuptake of dopamine. And so there's more dopamine, which is one of our rewarding neurotransmitters. It hangs around more in the brain. And so we get more of a reward from it. You know, after just one or two 
interactions with cocaine, people really like it and they want more of it. But then you keep doing more of it and then you get this secondary response, which is that the more you do, the less your brain will manufacture of this stuff because it doesn't have to. We're, our brains are clever. They're very efficient. And so if we provide them with a substance that mimics something they naturally make and they don't have to make it, they won't. But another part of it may be that all of these feel-good hormones, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all of those in higher doses in the body are actually killing cells. If one of those responses goes on longer than the body can handle it, it can cause everything to start to break down and be damaged. Quite often a snake bite, the reason it kills is because it blocks the body's ability to get that out of the system. When neurotransmitters hang around for a while, they disrupt the equilibrium in the brain because our brains have adapted to those being taken away out of the synapse, out of the chemical surrounding of the brain. And so if it persists, it creates a new equilibrium. And addiction biologists have a term for it. They call it allostasis instead of homeostasis. So it's a disruptive equilibrium. Homeostasis is what we all really want. That is where the body is in balance and everything is humming along. It's a place that the body wants to stay and it feels pretty darn good. The body really wants to stay there and we have evolved so that we have to stay in very small limits for homeostasis. Like just for instance, the acid level in our blood has very narrow tolerance. And if we go out of it one way too high or too low, we die. The calcium in our blood exactly. is, and in fact, the calcium in our cells needs to be at a certain level. If the calcium in our cells is at too high a level, the cells can't communicate well. So they have to spit it out all the time. About 25% of the energy in the muscles goes to just pumping calcium and other ions in or out. And the brain is the same way because the brain relies heavily on moving these ions in and out to transmit signals. And that's how electrical signals are generated in the brain, by moving these ions around. So our brain, which uses about 25% of our energy budget, uses a big portion of that budget just to move these ions around to maintain that homeostasis. So you might imagine if we disrupt that homeostasis, bad things happen. And then we get to this other thing you call allostasis, which is where somebody finds a substance that helps them feel even better, but it starts to put the body out of balance and so they can start to crave it because in the background what's really happening is cells in the body are getting damaged. There's not only damage going on, but there's this constant signaling, I don't feel good, I don't feel good. And so the person experiences this craving, not so that they feel the euphoria or the ecstasy that they did with the initial exposure to the drug, but just to get to a point where they don't feel terrible. The whole opioid epidemic is an example of that, where those addictive drugs make people feel temporarily better, but the amount of pain that the body felt got bigger and bigger. You can think of it kind of like a dial that shows something like maybe temperature and there's a needle that you may may want it pointing straight up and down and if it goes too far to the left or too far to the right it gets into red zones that are unacceptably low or unacceptably high 
when you first expose yourself to a drug that makes you feel good, that needle tips over into the high zone where, wow, I'm feeling really good, but that's, it's in the red zone. But then your body reacts to the presence of the drug and starts cranking the needle back into the normal zone, but you want it to go into the high zone, but then your body reacts again. And so there's this tug of war between what your body is doing and what you're doing with the drug. And pretty soon you're barely keeping that needle in the acceptable range in terms of how you feel by giving it more and more drugs. And it's not because the body is not wanting you to feel good. It's that the body is recognizing that there's a lot of damage happening by being in these hot zones, these red zones you're talking about. Right. And the way it interprets that damage, which is a lack of balance in um, this homeostatic situation, is by telling you or giving you the feedback, I need more of that drug. That part's confusing, isn't it? It is. I mean, your brain can't really talk to you in words, so it just sends you these cravings. One of the areas where you have done a lot of research is in alcohol addiction. There's some interesting parts about how the craving for alcohol has something to do with desperately the body trying to reduce a middle stage of toxicity in the metabolism. Now that is so confusing. We're going to have to talk about this more than once. Right, start. right. Yeah. So um, let me start by talking about how your body breaks down alcohol. Alcohol is a very simple molecule. It has several carbons, but it's mildly toxic. Rubbing alcohol sterilizes things. It's toxic. The reason that there's alcohol at all is because the yeast organism that is usually eats sugar and uses that for energy, when it's doing that, it can get to a toxic state and need to spit out the part that we call alcohol to preserve its body and life instead of trying to use it as energy. So that may be a little bit of an aside, but that is the case that the reason we have alcohol to enjoy for drinking is because yeast and processing sugars got overwhelmed with how much they were trying to process and spit out the alcohol. Now, yeast are really nifty little critters because they can survive either with oxygen or without, which is kind of unusual. We have to have oxygen, and some bacteria can't survive in oxygen. But then there's a few critters like yeast that can go either way. And so when there's no oxygen, then they can't be very efficient at using sugar, and that's when they make alcohol all the time. That's why we put caps on bottles Exactly. when we're going to make wine or beer. Exactly. That's why fermentation is what's called an anaerobic process because there's no oxygen around. But on the other hand, they can go crazy if there's lots of oxygen around and it's like your engine revving too hot. And so then there's a safety valve and some of the energy in the sugar molecule gets shunted off in the form of alcohol so it doesn't burn out the mitochondria. They can be given so much food which in their case tends to be sugar primarily, mm-hmm. that you would think they go, hooray, we can, we can eat and eat and eat and grow and divide and do whatever they want. But they get to a point where they go, wait a second, if we keep trying to make this into food that we can use, basically energy that they can use, we're going to die because we've got a middle step in here where we're building up too much toxic stuff and we don't have enough time or energy to clean that out before the toxicity of it kills us. Mm-hmm. Right, and probably what they're building up too much of, and this is a guess on my part, is oxygen-free radicals because the mitochondria that are the energy processing organelles of their, their cells and our cells, they remove electrons from 
basically what was the sugar molecule and use those to build up other chemical compounds. But those electrons have to go somewhere and they go to oxygen, which is why we all need oxygen to have very efficient energy production pathways. Of course, wherever there's oxygen, there's going to be reactive molecules called free radicals, and those can be really damaging. So we have lots of mechanisms in our cells for dealing with free radicals, but they're still damaging to us, and yeast don't have nearly those protections. So it makes sense that they would shunt off some of the energy-containing parts of the sugar molecule into alcohol to slow down that process. And there's even a formula mm-hmm. that a guy in Germany told us about once on the science show called the Gibbs energy equation. Does that make sense to you? Because he said that these little yeast, they don't have pocket calculators, Mm -hmm. but they are figuring out where's the point where it's too dangerous to try to keep processing this stuff into usable energy and it will kill them if they do more. So they better spit it out. Right. Biochemists use the Gibbs free energy calculation to determine if reactions will proceed or not. Intellectually, we can look at these yeast decisions and say, good going, guys. (laughs) Well, these are reactions that have evolved through the process of natural selection. And natural selection, like the rest of the world, is bounded by physical constraints. And the Gibbs free energy mechanism is one of those constraints. Another constraint in the world is that usually as any living life evolves, the things that helped it live when it was simple and single-celled are usually still helping it live when it's multicellular, whether it becomes a tree or a person, that some of the lessons learned about how to survive without being poisoned, for instance, somewhere inside of us, that is still operating. Yeast, the simple-celled organism, biologists can look at this, physicists can look at this, and say, these little guys have figured out how to take in as much energy as possible while realizing that if they keep trying too fast, too much, it'll kill them, and then they spit out alcohol. Mm -hmm. So they spit out alcohol, which is a very simple chemical compound, but it has a certain level of toxicity. So, of course, they want to get rid of it. They can let it diffuse out of their cell membranes. And we like it, and actually many other animals love alcohol. Chimpanzees will go crazy looking fermented fruits elephants and elephants really go crazy and villagers try to in Africa try to get rid of fermenting fruit where they're elephants because the elephants will get drunk and wreck a village you know in their alcohol fueled behavior rage whatever I don't know what it would be in an elephant it's a scary thought right (laughs) it is a scary thought so it's it's not just humans that get drunk well let's back up a little bit do the single-celled yeast like alcohol? Well, apparently it's a way for them to reduce competition with bacteria. When they release it, get rid of the bacteria so they have more access to the local resources. Oh, what do you know? So it does two purposes to spit out alcohol. One is it keeps them from poisoning themselves inside. Mm -hmm. And when they spit it out, it puts the poison in the outside Mm -hmm. and that gets rid of the competition. Right, right. So pretty clever. We like it because it has certain effects on our brain. Alcohol can kind of wiggle its way in because it's such a small molecule. It can wiggle its way in and just mess up the way the nerve cell is responding to it. Well, I thought that people liked alcohol and maybe elephants too because it means that they worry less 
and they get more uninhibited and every multicellular animal kind of likes that. Exactly. And there's some neurotransmitters in your brain that will facilitate that kind of anxiety-reducing effect. Interestingly, it turns out that alcohol can affect every neurotransmitter system in your brain. So many other drugs just act at one, like uh, cocaine acts on the dopamine system. Dopamine is a single neurotransmitter. Marijuana acts on the endocannabinoid system. Again, a single neurotransmitter. But alcohol can act on all kinds of different neurotransmitter systems. So when you first start drinking it, you might feel some euphoria, you feel less anxiety, less social inhibition, because it's affecting some of your neurotransmitter systems, especially one called glutamate, that makes you feel good and makes you feel relaxed and happy. But then the more you drink, then the more it affects your GABA system, which will make you fall asleep or pass out. And people like me that can't drink a lot, I have a really short response in the euphoric or positive phase. And then the falling down asleep phase gets really extended. So I don't really like to drink that much because I don't want to just lay around and have no energy. And if I drink more than just one glass of wine, say, I'll have a headache the next day. I'll have a little bit of a hangover. People that really like to drink have a much longer positive phase and a shorter negative phase, and they have less hangovers, and sometimes they don't have hangovers at all. As part of any multicellular creature, if there's toxic stuff to spit out, you're not spitting it out into the ocean or the air. You're spitting it out into the body. Right, and so we have to have internal detoxification mechanisms, and we do that with enzymes. So our livers make these enzymes, and you know, as soon as it gets into your bloodstream, first stop, liver, whether it's a drug that's good for you or a drug that's bad for you like alcohol. Good for the liver. The liver does so much for us. The liver is awesome. And so you can see that in people that are alcoholic. You know, people's livers eventually fail because they're overworked so badly trying to break down this alcohol. Now, in breaking down alcohol in the body with our valiant liver taking charge of trying to do this, there are steps where the alcohol that's taken in actually becomes more toxic. Right. There's two steps. So the first step converts it into something called an aldehyde. And now aldehydes are much more toxic than alcohols. But then the body reacts really fast to the aldehyde and plucks another hydrogen off of that, converting it into acetic acid, which is basically vinegar. But some people, like many Asians, the aldehydes build up, which is why a lot of people of Asian ancestry can't drink. They get that flushing reaction and they get terrible headaches. Oh, that aldehyde is a little bit like in the yeast. If they get too much sugar, that little tiny yeast cell knows it will build up so much of that middle step, it will kill itself with the poison. Right. So that's why our enzymes that break down the aldehydes are usually very fast acting, much faster acting than many of the other enzymes in the body. People that have that inefficient type of enzyme are not likely to become alcoholics because they feel so lousy when they drink. Let's talk about the people who have lots of these enzymes and so they can drink a lot without having a hangover. They can be killing themselves and causing toxicity too. Shelley, it's really interesting. In mice at any rate, and we assume that this a similar thing is going on with people. Most of it is determined by what's going on in your brain. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you, do you seek it out? Is determined by 
specific details of your neurotransmitter systems. And we don't really understand exactly what those details are. We have some hints, but we don't know. Okay, so people can look in their family history and say, my grandfather was an alcoholic. He could drink everybody under the table, but he became a drunk every day. So I better not drink alcohol because I could be like him. Sure seems like a lot of families have those skeletons in their closets. But you can't go on 23andMe and have them say, guess what, you have the alcoholic gene. Nobody knows what it is. Right, and it's probably because since alcohol can affect so many different neurotransmitter systems in the brain, all of us might have one or more genes that make us susceptible. But it's kind of like getting a winning hand in poker. you got to get a bunch of those different winning or should I say losing genes. It's the winning hand in poker that makes you lose your life. Right. And so there's not a way for people to be warned about this genetically. They just have to look at their family background and say, oh, grandpa was an alcoholic. It could happen to me. Any addictive behavior is kind of overcoming those innate defenses that we have in our bodies, you know, not just our brains, but our bodies as well, for regulating homeostatic mechanisms. And so if something like alcohol or even sugar gives you such a rush, such a positive response, then our conscious mind is going to overlook the feedback signals that our body is giving to us. Thanks to Shelly and Beth for that discussion about homeostasis, allostasis, and things like alcohol addiction. In addition to being a science show volunteer, Beth Bennett is a CU Boulder biology professor and genetics researcher. She's also the author of the new book, Defy Aging. We'll link to an extended version of this interview and a transcript on our website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Artie Shaw, the Network Music Ensemble, and Will Ackerman. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to topics we've discussed today. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Benita Lee.